As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is AutoLine After Hours with John McElroy and Gary Vasilash, episode 408 for February 9th of 2018, Corvettes, Teslas, the Super Bowl, and Dalai Lama. Watch AutoLine After Hours live at AutoLine.tv every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 12 p.m. Pacific. You can subscribe to this podcast for free by searching for AutoLine in iTunes, Stitcher, or YouTube. AutoLine After Hours is brought to you by Bridgestone Tires, your journey, our passion. And by Lear, a global leader in automotive seating and electrical systems. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of AutoLine After Hours. Unfortunately, Gary Vaslash is not with us today. He's a little bit under the weather. But you're going to have a taste of Gary in the show anyway, because he gave me some great topics and questions that we're going to be getting into. But with Gary not being here, we got a couple of good people that are with us anyway. Chris Pockert with Roadshow by CNET back here yet again. Yeah, I keep coming back for some reason. There's only one reason why you keep coming back, dude. We like having you here. Thank you. I like being here. <laughs> and we've got Phoebe Howard with the Detroit Free Press. And Phoebe, great to have you here. Thank you. This is your sort of maiden voyage, as it were, on yes. Autoline After Hours. Yes. But cool to have you here. It's a pleasure. And our special guest today is Don Runkle. It, Don, it says you've been on the show before. Yes. I'd forgotten all about yeah, that, right. but that was a few years ago. A few years ago, I think, on the, maybe on the engine that I was working on. Yeah, well, and we're going to get into that in a minute. But uh, it says here you're with Runkle Enterprises. What oh, the well, hell is just, that? That's just a little consulting company when I don't have anything else to do. So. But <laughs> just for people who don't know your background, I, I think I first met you way back in the last century. You made me famous. You put I, me on the cover of uh, Automotive. Of Industries Automotive Industries Magazine, Industries, which right. I ran at the time. <laughs> but I, I think when I first met you, it, could this be right? You were the head of uh, advanced engineering at Chevrolet Engineering or Chevrolet Powertrain, something like that? Yeah, I had advanced engineering at the uh, CPC at the time, okay. the Chevy Pontiac Canada right. uh, group. And uh, before that, I think uh, when I was chief engineer, I went from being chief engineer of Chevy to that job. So mm -hmm. it was right in and around that time frame. And then uh, about a year and a half later, I became vice president of, of advanced engineering for the corporation. And then um, all of engineering after that for some time. So, And that, that was your GM career. Then you that spent was, a lot yeah. of time at uh, Delphi at as Delphi. well. But, yep. We uh, helped uh, lead the spinoff of Delphi out of General Motors. We tried three times, and finally the third time was the charm. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was good. And then I ended up uh, running I don't know, probably 50, 60% of Delphi at the time, the engine management group, chassis, so forth, and then uh, ended up being uh, vice chairman uh, and CTO and head of lean enterprise uh, uh, stuff at Delphi. So, And then was, you, you retired from that, and what, yep. you've been dabbling in all these high-tech companies. Yeah, I went from that, uh, didn't become CEO, and uh, Steve Miller came in and uh, led it into bankruptcy, so <laughs> it was a good time to not be there <laughs> since it stayed in there for quite a while. And uh, uh, ended up, uh, I think a month after I left Delphi, I ended up at Tenenbaum Capital, which I'm still with. Uh, they're a private equity company out of Santa Monica. And then got recruited uh, CEO of, a, of an engine company, got involved in a number of different ventures by, uh, by different venture capitalists and so forth. And, uh, and now I'm on the board of a couple companies. Lear is one of them, uh, Via Motors. Uh, Bob Lutz is the chairman of that. So 
I'm on that, and then uh, I serve as an advisor typically to boards or the CEO of uh, you know, a few others. So I have, yeah. I guess, seven different companies I work uh, with right now. And there goes your phone. I should have told you to turn that off before the show started. <laughs> He's a popular guy. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> it's one of those seven boards. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you the question. Um, what was more, what's more exciting? Is it getting to dabble in different things now and having your fingers in lots of pies, or did you really like the focus of something like, you know, advance at GM? I think it, it, it all was exciting all the time, uh, frankly. When, uh, when I joined GM way back in the Stone Ages, uh, you know, we were into solving the emissions issue. Uh, fuel economy was a big deal there and lots of laws and so forth. Safety was enormous, you know, lots of barrier crash stuff. My first job at GM was simulating barrier crashes to, so we didn't have to crash the cars into the barrier but do it on the computer. And so that was all exciting. And then as I moved along, you know, uh, we got much more involved in racing and performance, uh, Chevy racing and so forth, Buick racing. And then uh, um, I did lots of concept cars and so forth. They're always exciting because you you pick a topic and try to push the envelope, whether it's an electric vehicle or high performance like the Serve 3 or something like that. And then uh, I would say, though, when I left the big companies, General Motors followed, you know, Delphi was a big company also. Uh, I found uh, the venture world is just fascinating. And then as I got engaged in that, I was given opportunities in industries other than the automotive arena. And that opened my eyes to a lot of other things. You know, I'm involved in the nuclear energy business right now and the software business and, uh, you know, autonomous vehicles and artificial intelligence uh, was one of the companies I'm working with right now. And so I I just can't. uh, And right now, I mean, if I were just coming out of college today, I'd absolutely go into the auto industry (laughs) I mean, with all the stuff that's going on. And we're right at the, the verge of a revolution, whether it's. Uh, autonomous or uh, let's call I don't want to say electric vehicles, but electrification of powertrain uh, because that clearly helps uh, with the fuel economy and, and so forth. When you talk about, you just made reference to your areas of expertise and you said... The I don't emi- know if I'm experts, but I got involved. The landscape, in right? <laughs> so you talked about the emissions and you talked about safety and that's all in the fuel efficiency. It's a whole new world, yet still revisiting the areas that... Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I know when I was head of advanced engineering at GM, I made a speech because we had just purchased uh, used aircraft. And, uh, and I thought, you know, that almost ought to be illegal. No one should be able to buy a company with that technical capability. Mm. But uh, Roger Smith had that as one of the Lulus, and, and we ended up with it. And I was sort of the, the gatekeeper between the aerospace guys and General Motors. How do you bring this fabulous technology into... Uh, the, the automobile business. And so I went out and made a speech, and I said, what we should do jointly between our companies, obviously we own them, but, but we should do it, is we should have cars that uh, are not in the environmental equation. So effectively zero emissions. And, and I wasn't picking a technology, whether it was electric or internal combustion engines. Uh, we should have cars that do not have accidents, can't happen, so that we don't have any uh, accidents out there. Today we what, there's a million, two hundred thousand worldwide deaths due to... to, to motor vehicle accidents. Motor Absolutely. vehicle accidents. I mean, can you think of a product that, that would be legal, that killed, you know, a million people a year? <laughs> <laughs> so maybe, talk about gun laws. <laughs> so, so, uh, so, uh, so that was uh, a second challenge. And then uh, the whole issue of... Um, of not connectivity, but this this uh, um, congestion topic. How do we not have congestion and so forth? And still, those are very relevant today. And and trying to bring the technology that you had at the time into GM, and, and we had some minor successes. But the cultures were so so different between the aerospace uh, guy. I remember one of the guys that at uh, Hughes, just a terrific guy. He says, Uncle, we don't understand your business. He says, here you guys spend $2 billion, you build prototypes, you build factories and all that, and then you put it out and see if anybody actually wants to buy it. (laughs) At Hughes, we sell it first. 
And then we get the government to pay for us to figure out how to actually do what we sold. <laughs> well, that's a, that sounds a lot better. It says, we know we have the customer. We already sold it. Well, that's, that's sort of the Tesla model right now, right? They've pre-sold, or at least they've got all the hand raisers, and, and they've collected deposits on a lot of things, and yeah. they're just starting to build the cars now. Yeah. And by the way, they're in aerospace, too. Yeah, right. So what do you make of Tesla as a car company? What are your thoughts? Well, they, they need to get to the point where they actually do make profit. And uh, I, I read this morning, you know, they, they burned through quite a bit of cash uh, over the last year. And the last quarter, I guess, was a record loss. So uh, they, they, have to, they have to get to that point. Uh, I think the, the product seems fine. Uh, but uh, my feeling is, and I've always felt this way, that the uh, major players now are into that role. So the guys that never screw up a car. Here comes the Porsche Mission E and, and other and words. So, well, here comes the Mercedes and General Motors and, and everyone is engaged. And, and I'm not saying it's all going to be electric. I mean, Tesla Jaguar. is committed to That's electric. That's what everyone's waiting for. Yeah. Where many of the OEMs will have electric, but they'll have electrified uh, powertrains. And, right. you know, most of these 20, 30 years from now, we'll still all have internal combustion engines. <laughs> and, and by the way, they'll also have profitable vehicle lines already to defray the cost of developing those electric vehicles. Yeah. And they have the infrastructure in terms of uh, dealership networks and, and such. And, and they'll have terrific they have, cars. Because, they're quality. Yeah. And there's a lot of things in the Teslas. We were just talking about the fit and finish and stuff like that. that, that yeah, before that, the show, we were saying that the fit and finish on them are not very Yeah, good. I mean, it's a, you know... It, it, you would never get a car like that out of the big guys now. They're fabulous quality, whether it's General Motors or Ford or Mercedes or you name it. You just, it's hard to buy a bad car today. And, uh, and so these guys won't mess that up. And uh, my feeling is Tesla doesn't have any particularly technology, they would certainly disagree, any particularly technology that, particular technology that, that most everybody in the car business don't already know. Now, whether it's the control electronics or how motors work and how that should get better. Nothing particularly earth-shattering in the battery arena. That, that may be true, but, you know, uh, over-the-air updates, they were the first to be able to do that. No one has caught up, not even close to them. They put that giant screen in the Model S, what, 10 years ago? How, how, when did that thing come out? And no one's caught up to them on that. So even though the industry may be aware of what mm -hmm. Tesla's got, there are Two items of technology that no one's even come close to catching up to them on. Yeah, as long as you want to catch up on those. I would entertain, there's a lot of smart car companies out there, and if they didn't do that, it wasn't because they didn't know how to do it. They just might have a different view on whether that is the thing that now makes you innovative and terrific. Uh, I don't know if I need a 12 by 12 screen it's uh, cool, man. I'm telling you, it's really see, cool. Well, you got the it, new Tesla cars. cars. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, it doesn't sell many the cars. Vehicles have, <laughs> Let's get serious about the sales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they're, <laughs> just they're, how many are they selling? Well, they, they they sold last year. They just sold over a hundred thousand cars. Mm -hmm. But you know, a hundred million year. I, I know, I know. But you know, uh, I think their sales were up like thirty-eight percent. Well, that's easy when you have small numbers. Well, I suppose. Seriously, what you were saying, Phoebe? Well, on that note, I like to ask people, you know, when you think about F-150s, you know, that in a whole year, Tesla produces, <laughs> right, that are profitable. But it's, it's an amazing concept that what a Detroit automaker builds in one month and what others build an entire year. Yeah. I mean, the standards and application, you asked about um, Tesla being an auto company, and Tesla does not want to be considered an auto company. Oh, that's right. It's yeah. like a dirty word. Yeah, they're selling the they're brand. And they uh, they certainly don't behave like a traditional automaker in any sense of the word, from PR on down to, you know, it's... Yeah, it's yeah I admire the, the, what the company has done there with uh, that, but I do think in terms of innovation and stuff like that, I don't see particularly anything that's, you know, frankly, the controls... And the, uh, the way they did the electric motor is all the stuff right out of uh, the GM EV1. And if you don't believe me, ask the, the guy at Tesla, J.B. Strobel. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think they did do a lot of innovative thinking for a while. I think their window of opportunity is closing. Well, you got a lot of heavy artillery coming into that yeah. space now. And I think the, the GM Bolt's a good example of a very high quality, good numbers the whole way around. And, uh, you know, and, and outperforms the, uh, the, the Teslas in many regards. It does, but, and, and, and I'm not going to diss the Bolt. I think it's a terrific car. It doesn't have $400,000 or 400,000 customers putting down a deposit. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And uh, that's the one thing that Tesla's done a brilliant job. Yeah, they have. Of, with uh, zero marketing, essentially, yeah. they, they've got people standing in line to buy their cars. Yeah, but just keep in mind, let, let's make sure we know what the volumes really are and, and what they have done there. They're tiny, and uh, EVs are not a big factor in the... Uh, so what do you think is going to happen with the electric car market? I, uh, well, as right soon now, as they get the gas tank to cost less... Um, I battery. think they'll have a bright, uh, yeah, the battery. I mean, what what is it? Okay, a couple hundred dollars per kilowatt hour. So what's the Bolt's got a 60 uh, kilowatt hour battery, 60 times 200, that's $12,000 battery. Yeah. Or, or a $12,000 gas tank. Gas tanks usually cost around $100 or so, and they don't wear out. And uh, to fill up a gas tank of a Bolt, if it were internal combustion engine, what would it get, 40 miles per gallon, something like that? So it would cost you $15 to get 238 miles, which is what the, the Bolt gets. And probably to fill up the tank of an electric car costs 3 bucks or something like that for $0.10 cents a kilowatt hour or something like that. But you've got to pay for the $12,000 gas tank. <laughs> I figured it out this morning at breakfast. That takes 25 years. <laughs> so I'm not too worried about the internal combustion engine being hanging in there. So just because, you know, and I, I was the co-founder of the United States Advanced Battery Consortium with the Department of Energy, and we brought GM, Ford, and Chrysler in. Because when we did the GM EV1 uh, impact, which led to the EV1, you know, it was clear the problem was with the electric vehicles is the battery costs too much. It wears out, and it simply is uh, the range issue. And um, so we created the, you know, my point to the other two guys, GM and, and uh, or to uh, Ford and Chrysler, is let's pull our resources to see if we can't find better batteries. We don't compete on gasoline. Mm. So let's not compete on batteries. Let's compete on my electric car is better than your electric car and because mine's green and yours is purple and, and that sort of stuff. And, uh, let, but let's get the price of the battery down, the cost of the battery and so forth, to the point where it, it could be a viable alternative to uh, gasoline. So we picked the number of $100 per kilowatt hour all in. That's not just the cells. That's the whole battery. The pack. The pack. And a lot of times you hear quotes and you got to dig in and find out, you're talking cells you, because it's about 50% different <laughs> in those. And, uh, and so that's where the $100 uh, uh, target came from. And they're starting to sniff around that number. You know, I don't know where it is today, probably a couple hundred maybe. You hear lots of different numbers. I'm in a company that we actually buy electric vehicles, so we see at least what we have to pay for them, and it's not close to $200 <laughs> per kilowatt hour. So anyway, uh, I think uh, battery um, costs have to continue to come down and uh, all the other things of faster charging and things like that. But they've made good progress in that. Uh, they've got reasonable range now. And uh, so it's not, you know, when we brought out the GM EV1, we had, what, 23 miles of, of range. You know, we had 800 pounds of lead-acid batteries because that's what we had. Um, so, But when you're looking at the markets and who's buying and who's interested, even when you go to the tiniest towns in California, the agriculture communities, all the malls, all the shopping have charging stations. I mean, the places you would least expect. So California is ready, and it goes to, you know, if you buy it. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, do you ignore that? A lot of people oh, say Oh, I, I would not ignore it. I think everybody should, should have one and do it. I, I'm just saying, will it become the, uh, the internal combustion engine of the next 25, mm. uh, 30, 40 years? And I don't believe the numbers would support that because of cost of the gas tank. <laughs> hey, we got a, a, a phone call here uh, on a topic that I wanted to, to talk about, Corvette. Let's, let's bring that in, Carmen. Hey, guys. All excited about today's show. Mr. Runkle and Chris, I have a question for you guys. Do you think it costs the manufacturer any more to produce on a dedicated platform a front Mid-engine car versus a rear mid-engine car. Either version would be a dedicated platform to that vehicle. Shouldn't the manufacturing costs be relatively close? Uh, as an example, say a C7 Corvette and a C8 Corvette. 
course, we don't know what's going on, but just curiosity. I, I was wondering if uh, the production costs of the two vehicles would be somewhat similar. Thank yeah, you very much, and I'm waiting with bated breath to watch today's show. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, I, uh, my experience, and I did... Um, you did a lot of Corvettes. A lot of Corvettes. Not me personally, but my teams at uh, Advanced Engineering and Chevy and so forth. So we did the Serve 3, which mid-engine. We did the Chevy Indy, which was mid-engine. So we always had to do a mid-engine Corvette, and then we'd come, come back to reality and actually go with the front-engine <laughs> configuration. And our studies would say that the mid-engine configuration, uh, right or wrong, turned out to be more expensive. But that really wasn't the, the, the reason for uh, uh, going that configuration. The Corvette already has a roughly a 50-50 weight distribution. Uh, the uh, the, the uh, mid-engine configuration would be a little easier to tip in going into turns and so forth. So I think it comes down, typically mid-engine uh, vehicles have less, um, uh, less um, uh, functionality, so to speak. Where do you put a couple bags of golf clubs and because once you give the designer the idea that you can put a low hood on because you don't have the engine up there he will do it <laughs> <laughs> he will take it down and now there isn't any any room up there so typically most mid-engine configurations have less uh, functionality and i'd say the corvette has had great functionality over the years given uh, the performance that it uh, that it has so uh Fabulous I'm a big fan of the configuration. Yeah. When we moved the transmission to the rear, that helped the, the weight distribution, which we did on the, one of the, the versions, and it's there today. And uh, the power today, it runs with anybody out there, whether you're mid-engine or, 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 or front-engine. So the performance is much different than 20 or 30 years ago, where mid-engine cars would run circles around uh, front-engine cars. So, but that's n not the case. Today. So what is it that cost more? In, in, you know, you did the analysis. It's just where the, uh, the cooling system is, and you've got to get it to the engine and so forth. With a front-engine car, it's there. So uh, that's less. And then sometimes, because of the way you do that, you end up with more fans and more cooling there. Uh, I'd say the, I think the transmission configuration is a little more marginally more expensive. You know, probably Dave... Uh, Cole or, some, or not Dave Cole, Dave McClellan or somebody will call and say, now you're all wet in this stuff. But uh, uh, at least the studies we did those times. But, but we weren't um, deciding to go one way or the other based on cost. When we did the uh, C4, when we put lots of aluminum uh, in the structure and basically changed the Corvette uh, position even in the marketplace, substantially increased price and so forth, we recognized we had a great brand, and uh, people were asking for more performance and, and be able to run with the big guys in Europe and so forth. And uh, we did that, and the price changed pretty high. There was a lot of angst whether that would fly or not, but we were also doing stuff with the Camaro at the same time to sort of fill anybody that didn't want to go to the vet. They had a good choice with the, with the Camaro. So I'd say there was uh, some marginal uh, cost uh, penalties there, but it it didn't matter to us, actually. Yeah, I think the practicality uh, among vet buyers is really important. A lot of those guys, they talk about things like, you know, how much they can get in the back. And yeah. actually, oddly enough, their fuel economy. They all love talking about fuel economy, vet owners. Because it's pretty impressive. It is. Oh, Both of those things are my, my wife, I bought my wife one for her birthday. And, uh, you know, you're driving down at 70 miles per hour. You look down, it's running on V4s. must be getting 30, 40 miles per hour. I said, this is ridiculous. <laughs> 450 horsepower. Yeah. It does 200 miles an hour. It's getting 35 miles per gallon. <laughs> So that's pretty good. Yeah. I saw you had the Serve 3 up there. So, yeah. Uh, that was... Uh, the, the blue car that yeah, we had the, the picture car. up yeah, there. Yeah, the inflating car. That was mid-engine. We took the ZR1 engine and put a bunch of turbos on it, and we had nearly 800 horsepower in that. Full, band, full high bandwidth uh, active suspension, complements of uh, Lotus. Talk about that a little bit, because that active suspension was phenomenal. Yeah. I would say in all of my years, and I've driven millions of different cars and so forth, there was nothing that has made a bigger impact on me on particularly ride quality with, uh, and even gaining on, on handling, handling capability as a full bandwidth, high bandwidth, uh, which means the, the, the number of hertz of cycles there that, that it will participate at, uh, was, uh, was very high. Uh, was the full bandwidth, high, uh, uh, high bandwidth uh, active suspension. Uh, you'll remember Ayrton Senna won uh, the Detroit Grand Prix with an active suspension uh, Corvette, or uh, active suspension Lotus. 
And, uh, you know, we had, a, what, a 25-horsepower hydraulic pump uh, in the uh, thing. I, I wish we'd have put it on the Cadillac instead of the VET. Now, my first love was, the, was the, the VET, but it was a hell of a packaging problem because you had all these high-pressure uh, hydraulic uh, uh, hoses running around. You had load cells in every cylinders, and we would power the shock absorbers. We weren't waiting for stuff to happen. So in other words, just so those in the audience not familiar, this is not like electromagnetic, rheological, uh, no. uh, adaptive shock. You're putting power into We are into putting a lot of power into individual corners, and you know, you can do things. You can bank into a turn if that turns you on. You can uh, almost lift the wheel up. You, and so whenever you're going over uh, whoop-de-doo, so to speak, and so forth, the vet or the active suspension just goes through that as if you were... were uh, on a flat road? On a flat road. And I remember I, I sold this to our top management at the time, and uh, I, uh, I, I had a video that was the, the one that did the job. I had uh, one of our lady engineers, and I said, here, go around the, the, one of the, the courses here, at the, which had a lot of whoop-de-doos at the proving grounds. And I said, um, in one hand, hold this glass of water. And so she goes blasting around this thing and comes back, and the water she is soaked. And, and the glass is totally empty. I mean, it just, you know, just all over the place. And I said, then jump in the active vet, same thing, full glass of water, didn't spill a drop. Wow. <laughs> and that was the closing argument. I says, guys, that's it. <laughs> but nobody's done an active suspension. No one has done an active suspension. There's a lot of things. Uh, Clear Motion has some interesting stuff going on out there. Uh, with, uh, with shock absorbers, Bose had a, uh, a system. So they've all messed around with it. But no one's put in 25, 30 horsepower uh, of hydraulic capability into those uh, things. And there were some technical issues. We were headed for production. We had a, a production-approved program at, at GM to put it on the Corvette. Uh, but we ran into a technical problem called impact harshness, you know, tar strips and stuff like that that we could not manage to acceptable levels. And we began putting so much rubber in the system, then we lost control of what we were in there for in the first place. <laughs> so we folded it. But uh, I always thought someone should continue the development of that and solve the one issue we had. Because today, you know, driving around, just I was coming in from the airport the other day, and you're smashing around in the back of a car and stuff like that. Yeah, the roads, the roads are Where worse. are we? And today, the roads are crying for active suspension. Well, and I think as we move toward autonomy, that, that sort of suspension discipline and keeping, you know, uh, ride motions to a minimum is going to yeah. be more and more important. Absolutely, because, I mean, in, in, in these autonomous vehicles and so forth, you're going to be doing homework, you're going to be looking down, you're going to be getting car sick. And, uh, and, and I think you don't need to go to a full active to uh, uh, help that particular problem. There's some, there's some good systems that are being developed right now, which I think will come out in the next few years. Uh, that will help in that ar arena. But uh, this um, movement of the head and so forth and looking down at your computer screen uh, is, a, is a good opportunity for, you know, development there. What's, what's been the chief impediment there? Is it cost? Is it packaging? Is it reliability? Is it weight? Cost is a big one. This was a very expensive uh, system. You got a powerful motor. You got high pressure uh, uh, hydraulic lines, um, steel braid and so forth, the packaging of it, the load cells are very expensive in every corner. And the, the, let's call it the shock absorber itself, it's a hydraulic, uh, hydraulic uh, actuator, basically. Everything was expensive. Uh, so uh, I think cost was that. But today, I mean, you got a lot of expensive things out there and high-fidelity systems and so forth. So once, once you ride in a full active thing, you'll figure it out how to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, uh, we got a lot more to get into. Uh, questions from the audience, topics we want to get into, other things, but we got to take a quick commercial break right now. In fact, you've heard of this company. It's called Lear. Hey, one of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to that now. Lear Connexus offers a parental controls application with geofencing that sends notifications regarding driving behavior and location, including curfew alerts, acceleration alerts, and speed alerts. All delivered to a smartphone application that includes vehicle location, driver notifications, and a report card of driving history, including notifications when predefined geographic boundaries are crossed. 
For more information, visit Lear.com. Okay, we're back talking with Don Runkle, <laughs> with Phoebe Howard and Chris Pockard on AutoLine After Hours. We got a number of questions in. Let's go through them real quick and get to some other topics. Mike Flowers wants to know, what do you think about solid-state batteries for electric cars? Well, I think uh, it's, a, it's a terrific uh, opportunity to, to continue to develop. I knew uh, Anne-Marie Sastry, um, a professor at University of Michigan. She sold her, uh, her solid-state battery company, Sacti3, to Dyson, the vacuum cleaner company. The vacuum cleaner company, but I heard he's making noise about maybe a vehicle or something. He, he there, said so. he wants to get into electric cars. <laughs> so maybe this right. battery's better than I thought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, uh, you know, the electrolyte has always been the issue in batteries and fires and so forth, so... Uh, Solid-state batteries, I think, is a, is a good one. But again, we're going to need pretty, um, uh, you know, at least a decimal point change in the cost of uh, batteries and so forth to, to get it up into the, into the area where it would really be a, a serious competitor to internal combustion engines uh, and so forth. So um, I think there's a, you know, uh, at the cost per kilowatt hour in gasoline, I think, is, uh, is seven cents. Not two hundred dollars. Yeah. So, thousand, okay, thousand we, to one. We got another one here, <laughs> Albert. So you can have a lot of inefficiency in internal combustion engine to make up for that. <laughs> Albert Maniscalco wants to know what about improvements in terms of electric motors, and not you know okay batteries got to improve. Yeah. He's he's wondering about motors, and he says what are the pros and cons of using multiple motors? Well, I think uh, we did a, a number of concept vehicles. Uh, one was the HX3, which is a hybrid uh, looking like a, a minivan uh, a hybrid vehicle that had motors in the wheels. And there's quite a bit of activity now with motors in the wheel. That's a, uh, you know, there's some downsides, but there's a, that's a, 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 a good thing to look at. Uh, my feeling is the, you know, the, the motor technology is fairly mature. Probably all the motor companies are out there say, well, you haven't seen what's in my labs today, so, uh, which is true. Uh, but um, but they've been developed uh, uh, quite handily out there, and, and I don't think it follows Moore's law by any means where it's going to you know, reduce in cost every uh, 12 to 18 months and half. So uh, I think uh, it'll be more or less like today, but following the normal sort of 2 to 3% type uh, cost reduction. But I think, obviously, electrification and electric motors um, allow you to patch up the weaknesses in the internal combustion engine, basically. The internal combustion engine is pretty good when it's running at its sweet spot, at its good efficiency point, where we rarely run it at. We almost always run it at its worst spot. And so, therefore, it is sort of this 20%, you know, a lot of idling. And so now we fix that with engine off at idle. And, um, but still fairly low power. The problem with the car with an internal combustion engine is you have to size the engine for F equals MA, force equals mass times acceleration. So you pick the mass of the vehicle. You pick the acceleration 0 to 60 and whatever. That tells you what the horsepower is. And you have to size the engine for that even though you will use less than 10% of that almost all the time. So you've got a 400-horsepower Suburban, you're going down the road, it takes, what, 40, 50 horsepower, but you've got a 400-horsepower engine up there. And, uh, and so you're running that at a very inefficient point. With electrification, you begin to use the electric motor and as little battery as you can get away with to handle the power part, but use gasoline for the energy part which is these long, you know, across the road for the next 500 miles. Hard to beat gasoline and energy density there. Okay. Dale Leonard wants to know, what's your opinion of standard shift? And do you think it will ever make a comeback in the United States? What, what's standard shift? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you, you, you mean the standard transmission? Man, manual, manual transmission. Trans oh, manual right, transmission. Yeah, right. That, no, that, that's what I'm guessing so. he means. Today's, uh, you know, today's... Automatic or, uh, or uh, uh, paddle shifting is so good. Uh, my son and I go out to a fellow's uh, Corvette racing school every, uh, uh, every year, and we're heading out there again in, um, in April. 
And so uh, we use manuals out there, but it's um, hard to beat the guys with automatics. <laughs> automatics have gotten to be amazingly good. They're amazing. And the rev matching on the, uh, yeah. uh, on the, uh, on the manuals now are just give up, heel and toe. It's not worth learning. No. I, I, <laughs> so it was interesting um, when they, they launched the Bullet, the Mustang Bullet, mm -hmm. and one huge issue that was really thought-provoking for millennials in the market is when... Um, Molly McQueen, she's in her 30s, had never driven a stick. Um, Ford gave her lessons to learn for the ad that she made. Yeah. Um, and she said it changed how she felt being in a vehicle. Really? So she's 30 years old, and she said her entire life when she's in a car, she views the trip as going from point A to point yeah. B. Just getting there. Just getting there. She said, having had the stick experience... Now you're more engaged. You're engaged. She said, it's fun. You're paying attention. You, every single moment in the vehicle is... She said she'd never, she'd never talked to anyone about it, but it really changed how she viewed being in a car. Yeah. That's you're, a good point. You're a lot more tied to the physics of the vehicle. You're a lot less likely to be a distracted driver. There's no unintended acceleration. And a certain satisfaction you know. on how you're Oh, yeah. It's wonderful. All that stuff. But and, that's, uh, an, I mean, that's someone in there, you know, 30 years old, had never had the experience. And, and we should explain, too, this is Steve, Steve McQueen's, McQueen's granddaughter. granddaughter. Right, right. Yeah. right. And, uh, yeah, had never, had never had the experience. In fact, Ford brought her to Dearborn to shoot the spot and assumed she knew how to drive. And she's like, you've got the wrong person. I have no idea what to do. I'm really embarrassed. Um, but it is amazing to think of how we think of the, the experience. And all of us have driven That's stick. That's interesting because I have a 19-year-old son. He's an engineer down at the University of Michigan, mechanical. And uh, so we were heading out to the Corvette Racing School for three days. And uh, I said, Damien, you've got you to gotta get up to speed on manual transmissions because, you know, he's like uh, McQueen there, Molly McQueen, yeah. you know, really didn't know how to do it. I said, what's going to happen when, I, when your girlfriend's got a manual transmission, she throws you the keys, and you're going to sort of be down there looking at your shoes, you know, trying to figure this out. So the car companies, the, the both um, domestic and foreign, both have said it's a huge, it's a theft prevention. They've actually had situations where people <laughs> jump into the vehicle to steal and they can't drive it. And it's a problem with valet, yeah, actually. I, I've Val run into oh, that yeah. problem yeah. with valets who go, sir, I can't move the car. And then you say, I can only park up front right there. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, but the theft prevention is real. They've yeah, actually, I mean, some of the companies have talked about that. So I was going to teach my son how to drive manual, so I tried to get a manual. So you can't rent a manual. Not possible. Yeah. Not possible. I, I was going to have to buy a car, teach him how to do that, and then sell the car, right? So <laughs> a friend of mine said, hey, I have a Z06 with, uh, with manual. You can have that for a week and teach him. Well, that's a that, tough so. car to learn on because the clutch is so heavy. <laughs> I said, Damien, all you got to do is keep it in seventh gear. It doesn't need a transmission. This thing's got so much horsepower. <laughs> but he picked it up right away and, and, and beat me at the race course out there. Ooh, the so there you go. Now is another sport I can't beat him at. <laughs> what was your first stick? Oh, my, the, the, I actually, my first job while I was still in high school was washing the post office trucks for the city of Farmington post office. And they were manual. And they were manual. Wow. And I wanted to drive them. And they were right-hand steer. So I had to shift with my left hand. And I, I loved the job. It was the best job. They paid me 50 cents for every truck that I washed. And I was in pig heaven. <laughs> my, first, uh, my first stick was a right-hand drive also, a T Triumph TR2 right-hand drive. And, uh, you know, you got to shift with your left hand. It's a stick, you know. So I was 15 at the time and <laughs> bought this TR2. And then, then a Volkswagen Beetle with manual transmission. <laughs> How about you, Chris? My, mine came a bit later, but it was an 86 Jetta GLI Euro spec, and it was my first car. I took my driving test on it. Hmm. Phoebe, you drive a stick? Supra, yeah. A Supra. A portion of Supra. Those are the only ones oh, I've ever done. And You're I, golden in my book. <laughs> both both manual. And, and, well and, and, and short-lived. Let me point out, short-lived. Yeah. But um, it's an amazing, I love that experience. And I stopped driving after, um, when you're in San Francisco Hills, you know, you just, yeah. it's terrifying to be yeah. in complete control. Yeah. You really don't. My son got the biggest kick out of I, after he got used to it after a day or two. I says, okay, Damon, now we're going to do some shifting without the clutch. And so uh, I said, just feel, feel it now. You know, and just, <laughs> so then he's driving all over the town, you know, just no clutch other than starting and stopping. <laughs> so. That's great. Hey, uh, I want to get into uh, jumping topics completely right now. The Super Bowl was last weekend. There was all kinds of advertising. Car companies especially throw tons at it. And Phoebe, I know this is something that's near and dear to your heart. You've really been following it. 
what stands out in your mind? Consumer it, this behavior. Is whatever. So here's a couple strange points, because I, I do like to track consumer behavior, specifically related to cars and purchasing power. Um, so Lexus and Jeep uh, and Kia dominated both brand and specific models, meaning people watched the ads and they hopped on the computer and they went and looked at all Kia vehicles and they went and looked at mm. all Jeep vehicles and they went and looked at all Lexus vehicles. And then they had different data where they went for the specific vehicles as well. Um, interestingly, Ram performed horribly. So people saw the ad and no one looked it up. Wow. So uh, that was the one of the worst. That was actually the worst performance. Jeep. Jeep did incredibly well. I loved it. Uh, both the Wrangler and Never. the Cherokee. Well, that was a great ad because it was great. it was as simple as the vehicle is, oh, right? Yeah. It was one shot. There was no soundtrack. There was just the the steady voice of the announcer, and it was just all the way through. And it was just that is a Jeep. That's Beautiful. exactly what it was. It was Beautiful. perfect. perfect. And the uh, yeah, the, just to, what what else we found that's really interesting is that consumers still think that Dodge owns the Ram. So people will now Google Dodge to look for a Ram, and obviously the companies have been separated for now nine years. So it's really interesting. Um, how do you advertise something like that? How do you market a vehicle that people are doing searches for your vehicle under the wrong company name? We're wow. Ram. Don't search Dodge. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will say, as you know, as a journalist, we have to protect for that. Yeah, with with SEO, we and we, you know, we might tweak a, a headline or a slug that you know you don't see in the, the headline of the article that has both Ram and Dodge because we know that people look for everything. Yeah, we hmm. have to, and it's amazing if you, if if any journalist, a media outlet, posts a story that doesn't say Dodge about Ram, you're your readership, your viewership plummets. So you actually have to account for consumer misunderstanding. Well, does FCA flip you over when you go into the Dodge uh, thing to flip you over to, to Ram? There's a strategy opportunity there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, Lexus, Lexus did incredibly well. And, and frankly, Jeep did uh, just off the charts. Jeep did, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really so good. very, very well. And uh, going back to the Ram ad, though, there was a lot of controversy because they used uh, part of a speech of Martin Luther King. And a lot of people were offended that they were using his remarks to sell trucks. And if you look at his full speech, it was against, you know, stupid spending over, you know, uh, uh, consumer spending stupidly, including on cars and things like that. Like unbelievable. Right. But does that hurt them at all? Um, yes. Okay. Yes. In fact, that's a really good question because some people said, is any publicity good publicity? If people are talking about how pitiful your ad campaign is, is that good because they're talking about you? No. <laughs> because we know that they're talking about you and they're mocking you and they're ridiculing you, but they're not going to look up the vehicle. They're doing no research. Mm -hmm. So we know that people... Um, go to dealerships less frequently. They used to make five trips. They now make one to buy a car. They do all the research and they show up and say, these are the three things. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, and so dealers love that. But um, this really was an opportunity missed. Uh, I mean, it's $5 million for 30 seconds. They said and that, that does not include the cost of the ad, which could easily be another five million. Easily, hmm. and uh, and they said they did it just for that Super Bowl spot, other than online penetration. Yeah. So it was a big it was a big loss, I think, hmm. um, for Ram. Hmm. Too bad. Hmm. Yeah, embarrassing and yeah. very much so. Chris, any ads stand out in your mind? Uh, well, the Jeep ad is the one that stood out right at the end. It was sort of a surprise. I think that took place in the third or fourth quarter, and I was just, I, I didn't expect it to come along. We knew that there were going to be a suite of ads from them. Uh, and just how simple it was in comparison to all the other ads, including that Ram ad. Um, and about that Ram ad, there was, uh, within, I think, 12 hours, um, there was a recut version of that ad with Martin Luther King's complete speech that applies to that and him talking about how um, people are tempted to spend money on cars and they're tempted, you know, advertising being a very um, untrustworthy and sort of difficult subject, uh, you know, and, and, and it was perfectly re-executed. And then um, my understanding is that, that uh, Ram quickly had that taken down because it was using their intellectual property. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I thought the dancing ad was the best one, but I can't remember what they were uh, what they what were, they were what, selling. What they were selling. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> you right. like the dirty dancing spot? Oh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> but I can't remember. You know, I'm having trouble remembering, what, too. What, what Can you remember pitching? what it was? I, don't, I, I didn't see was the, the NFL. The two, it was, no, they weren't advertising. It was, I can't remember what they were advertising. It was two I thought it was the NFL, no? I, oh. I didn't know who it was. So, so much for the ads. <laughs> <So funny. laughs> it was funny. That is funny. <laughs> Hey, look, uh, we got to take another quick commercial break. Speaking of commercials, we have got to take a commercial break, and this time we're giving a good shout-out to our friends at Bridgestone. Okay, we're back after hours talking all things automotive. Uh, we sort of left off with the Super Bowl ads, but the greatest, most incredible automotive stunt of all time took place this week as well with the Falcon Heavy being launched by SpaceX and putting a Tesla Roadster into space. So, Phoebe, you take it from there, because you've been following all the, the Super Bowl ads and the like. What do you make of this as a publicity stunt? Brilliant. Simply <laughs> brilliant. Great. I mean, um, we talked to families and all the people were gathered around the television. It was like a Kennedy moment. Uh, watching the launch and people talking about it, it's sort of shocking how many people in America paid attention and engaged. And, um, and this goes to the branding that you talked about. Are people buying a Tesla because they want a car, or are they buying a Tesla because they want to harness something different? And this is space travel. So I think that he's he's spot on with brand. Having said that, um, I talked to Tesla <coughs> wannabe owners who are waiting for delivery of their vehicle, and um, and they were just they were very irritated by this. They weren't amused and they weren't delighted. They really? just said all the energy focusing on going to space. We'd like some production. Give us our car. Yeah. You've got the money. We'd like our car now. I can't buy a rocket. Give me my car. Very interesting. Yeah. Building cars in quantities hard. <clears throat> I thought the best part of that, that I watched the whole 30-minute uh, launch. It, it was really great. And having all the employees uh, on the air pitching it and the enthusiasm of it, it, it must have been a great recruiting tool for uh, it, it was electrifying. Yeah. It was electrifying. The, the crowds, and they but were just the, cheering the whole time. It, it really, I mean, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. It was unbelievable. Wow. And, and I, my wife's in there. I said, you've got to watch this. I mean, this is terrific. But I thought the greatest part was sticking the landing of those two boosters. I said, this is Hollywood. He's making this up. <laughs> <laughs> they came down. They stuck it. <laughs> but the other thing that was fascinating is um, I spoke to an investor who watches the Detroit 3 and Tesla and said, we hold the Detroit auto companies to a different standard because Detroit isn't expected to take things into space. And when you're taking things into space, we give you leeway on how much money you lose <laughs> and how we hold you accountable. Hey, GM only provided the lunar rover. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, we put the first ones up there. Yeah. <laughs> Very important point. That's right. Speaking of Tesla, we have another phone call. Carmen, let's bring that one in. Hey guys, this is Youngblood, Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, my comment is to uh, Johnny Mac. Hey, thanks for calling out those uh, Tesla Model 3 groupies that are saying that you're picking on that vehicle. Hey, nowadays cars are made fantastically well. If that's not the case with their precious Tesla, you know, Musk promised them the moon. I mean, the Mars. I mean, you know, whatever he promised. And they should hold them to it, like you suggested. Thank you for calling them out, and uh, go team. Later. Bye. <laughs> All right. Thanks for that, young blood. Yeah, what he's uh, talking to is on Autoline Daily. I think it was yesterday I had said, you know, that I, we put out a video uh, working with Sandy Monroe that pointed out a lot of manufacturing flaws on the on the Model 3. And, of course, the, the Tesla fanboys came out of the, the oh, hills never. to attack us, pitchforks and, <laughs> and torches and all that. And so I, I made a comment about that on yesterday's show saying, look, you fanboys out there, don't do Tesla any favors when you pat them on the back for a job poorly done. You should be demanding <clears throat> excellence from this company because if it does not execute flawlessly, this company is going to fail. And, you know, listen, Don, I, I was equally as critical of GM back in the day sure. when it was turning out a lot of bad quality stuff. And that criticism helped the company. It helps the company. Yeah. Exactly right. So, I mean, there are people out there who just want to tear down Tesla because they just want to tear down Tesla. They hate Elon and the like. We're pointing out facts. And if you can't deal with the facts, get out of the kitchen, so mm -hmm. to speak. 
But uh, I, I really think that they need to stand up and the, the Tesla fans need to stand up and demand excellence from this company because what it's turning out right now is not acceptable in automotive terms. So anyway, no. there you go. No. <laughs> uh, Interesting how they uh, got to the point where they're not as good in the manufacturing, not, have not gotten good in manufacturing so far. Except that people who have them love them. Yeah. Yeah. Love them. They'll stop you in a parking lot and talk to you about their vehicle unsolicited. You don't right. want to hear about the vehicle, but they're <laughs> going to tell you about the vehicle anyway. I mean, it's quite amazing. No, no. Hey, look, the car is really cool. And as we've talked about here, they, they've introduced things that nobody's caught up to them on yet. But I, I believe, uh, you know, they're, they need to have that stock price high. They, they need to be able to leverage that to get the money that they need that's not being generated through profits because there are no profits at the company. And I think they rushed this car to market. It's not developed. It's not finished. They'll get it fixed in time. You know, sometime later this year, they'll start turning out decent quality cars. But, boy, anybody else would have had their heads chopped off. So... We'll see how they. There's a lot they of capability out there. I'm, I'm uh, surprised that uh, they did not tap into the people that know how to make cars. Forget whether it's a Tesla or something like that. There's lots of people in uh, Detroit area, the Frankfurt area, the you know the the Japan and so forth that know how to do cars, and um, you just got to hire them. And, and put them on the job, so to I speak. I think they had those people, Don. And I, I, I don't think they did in the manufacturing arena nearly well, enough. Uh, maybe, but I... Elon's c- credit, because I was out looking at Elon's car when it was just the two-passenger kicking tires for one of the investors. And, uh, you know, we came back, and, and Musk was in the, this meeting with us, and, and, he, and he said, what do you think? I said, your car is terrible. <laughs> you know, it was a prototype. It was the Lotus uh, conversion, so to speak. I said, my recommendation is, I said, it's neat. Anybody can do a two-passenger car that's high performance. This is not hard to do. This is, uh, this is straightforward. But, uh, but to make it a great car is, uh, takes some expertise. And I suggested go to one of those three, three cities and find uh, people that know how to, uh, to make cars, keep whatever proprietary technology you think you have private, but uh, to get the doors to work and the seats to work and all that other stuff, that's all been solved a million times. Uh, get those people and do it. To his credit, the, the cars came out. They had very high consumer reports uh, on, the, on the initial Teslas. So he did that. I'm, I was surprised, given all their issues in manufacturing, that somehow they, they must not have gotten the same quality of manufacturing capability. I, I have a different theory. I, I think Elon said, uh, we don't need to PPAP this thing, no pre-production yeah, things. Yeah, that's true. We don't have to have our tooling suppliers do tryouts before they ship the stuff to us. Just get the cars made. Mm-hmm. Because he's made all these promises to investors that we're going to start building these things and everything's going to go through the roof in terms of sales and profits and all that. I, I lay the blame right at his feet because I'm sure he had people telling him, Elon, no, we, we've got to do PPAP. We've yeah. we got to do pre-production. We've got to test this stuff. And they didn't do any of that. Mm-hmm. But I think so they're, now they're learning on the fly how to build a good that's car. That's an expensive time to learn. It is when you have to <laughs> manually build part, parts of the car or your, your supply chain's not quite right. Um, I think his ambition is, is so absolute and his authority is so absolute um, and his timetables are so short, um, in part because they're not making money and because they need to appeal to their investors and they have to deliver right away. Uh, and they're coming from the, the tech culture where, you know, you put things out and then you issue bug fixes thereafter, right? right? You, you, you beta test in public. Mm-hmm. That's not the car model nor- normally. Right. Um, and they've gotten away with that to this point. And I think they've been able to do that with higher end customers with things like the S and X, because they've, the people that can afford those cars can afford to be inconvenienced if the car goes away to the yeah, dealer for a while a dozen because they have cars. other cars <laughs> and because there are so few cars in general in circulation that their uh, service network could handle that. Now, when you ramp that with the Model 3 and you have all those yeah. additional vehicles in the system and, by the way, building you know 100,000 cars versus building 500,000 cars a year is very different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's going to be their chief challenge. And I think they baked in some problems. Um, into the way that they built the three and certainly the way that they built the X, those doors. I mean, we've heard Elon admit pretty much he would never do them again. Um, And I think he's learning 
It's just a question of how quickly will they learn versus the pace of everybody else coming in with, right. with their products. And it's not just the car, it's the batteries. They have huge problems at the Gigafactory trying to assemble the battery packs. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, we've got uh, another phone call here. Let's bring that in, Carmen. Uh, this is Clem Zorowski in Delmont, Pennsylvania. One of the reasons I believe that Corvette needs a mid-engine car is for the race team. They have to run a lot of rear-wing downforce to get traction, and that kills their straightaway speed. That's why, like at the 24-hour Daytona, the, the uh, Fords killed them because they had so much more straightaway speed because of their mid-engine configuration. They didn't need as much rear-wing downforce. Thank you. Bye. Yeah. Thanks for that. Your thoughts, Don? Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> Daytona was an anomaly. <laughs> so. Well, a lot of that has got to do with the balance of performance that IMSA gives to each team, and, and that'll change for the next race. Yes, I ran racing at both Buick, and not, I didn't, but the guy that worked for me ran racing, and any time we lost something like that, you'd be in the, uh, in the um, organizer's office the next day arguing for rule changes. <laughs> so, so either you take mass out, you change the wing, or do something like that, so... Uh, so I don't know, it, you know, certainly we, we knew the straightaway speeds were going to be a little uh, uh, lower than expected, but um, I think they did okay during qualifying and so forth. So um, we'll see how they do in the next race. They'll, they'll probably do a whole lot better just like because it. of that uh, balance of performance. Yeah, yeah. They need to make it competitive, and they like to change it around, the, the organizers do. Yeah, one last topic I think we ought to talk touch on uh, is we saw some management shuffle. I, I wouldn't call it a shakeup at all at FCA, Fiat Chrysler. And we saw Tim Kaniskas now being given all of Alfa Romeo and Maserati worldwide to run. And Reed Biglin having given up those two jobs to concentrate on sales. And uh, Phoebe, you're nodding your head there. What do, what do you make of what's going on here? Well, I think it's notable that the change happened after the big launches, Alfa Romeo Maserati. So obviously, Reed Bigland did a good job. I mean, the company's happy. They want him to focus now on U.S. sales, North American sales. That's the heart of the business for them. And so um, with successful launches of Julia, um, you know, Nostelvia, I think, I think that speaks to focus. It goes to your point that Fiat Chrysler is positioned beautifully going into 18 and 19, would you say? Yeah, I, that, that, I think they're going to have a good year this year because, you know, Jeep had a bad year last year, but a lot of that was dropping a model, doing uh, manufacturing changeover at the plants and losing production that way. I think they're going to make that all up this year. And they have a lot more capacity coming on also in the, in the RAM. In the RAM, they have a, a full assembly plant additional capacity coming on for RAM. I'm thinking, uh, my prediction in is... In the middle that, of a changeover at GM. So. And, and, <laughs> that the RAM is going to outsell the Silverado this year. GM's not buying it. Chris, what do you think of the change? I, I, I would argue that they're well positioned for RAM and for Jeep. Um, I would honestly question how successful the launch of Alpha has been, and certainly Maserati. If you look, Maserati had a short peak of sales mm -hmm. with their models, and then they went in the toilet. Um, and I would, I would argue that the, the lift that we've seen, and it's too early on Stelvio, right? But that, that should be the volume product. Um, those, pro, those vehicles have been known to have uh, widespread quality issues. Um, even by FCA standards, um, pardon me, but uh, I, I would argue that, that those brands are not where they need to be. Um, Fiat is, most of their product isn't moving at all. I think, you know, the American stuff is going to hold the fort and, and improve things for them. I think all of the Italian brands are in real serious trouble. But the American stuff, all the North, that's driving the whole company and has been driving the whole company. So I think shifting the executive attention to the U.S. sales, North American sales, is the key. But also, the question when you talk about things not doing well with Maserati and Alfa Romeo, how much of that is just, it's a brand that they didn't sink much advertising into it. It's not reaching... The American consumer, really. Um, you know, that, that could be part of it. I'm sure it's part of it. Right. Um, but they brought out the Levante, the SUV, which really should play to a much broader audience. For Maserati. Yeah, for Maserati than, than it already is. Um, the reviews, the critical reviews on that, the quality control issues, they, none of that has gone terribly well for them, I would argue. Um, and I think that, that problem persists throughout all of their Italian brands, um, or is more acute in those than, than in, in their domestic brands. 
And uh, I, I think it's a real problem. I think they put a lot of eggs in those baskets um, when they were doing things like delaying the Ram 1500 to focus on launching Alpha and all that. And, and you cut the profits out of the company when you do things like yeah. that. Yeah. No, I, I don't see how fiat can survive in the U.S. market. Elsewhere, sure, Europe, mm-hmm. Latin America, the like, it, it's doing okay. But uh, I, I don't see how their dealers are going to survive yeah. with the volume that they've got. Hey, you, you just can't run a store selling only a couple of cars a week on average. And So I'm with you on that one, Chris. What else? Anything else? Oh, Phoebe, this is another topic that you wanted to talk about. Mercedes-Benz got in big trouble in China because it did something with the Dalai Lama. And why don't you pick it up from there? So it mentioned, so Mercedes-Benz was um, cited right after Delta, right after Marriott. And so you have the Chinese government. Wait, 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 wait. you mentioned Delta and Marriott. What was that? Delta Airlines and Marriott for similar things. So um, With Mer- Dalai Lama or something so, else? So Mercedes-Benz simply put out a message with an inspirational quote citing the Dalai Lama, who's a leader of Tibet, of course, and, um, and the Dalai Lama is not to be mentioned or discussed in China. He's viewed as a separatist, and it's, it's a really big problem. Um, and so Mercedes-Benz has apologized repeatedly. Um, from a government standpoint in China, that can get companies in big trouble. So the U.S. companies are stepping very carefully with the words they use, the language they use, how you talk about the government, how you talk about the Dalai Lama, even mentioning Tibet, how you talk about Taiwan. So if you're a Detroit-based company or you're running Mercedes-Benz, you may think putting out an inspirational quote really is a nice thing to do. And, um, and it caused tremendous backlash and can actually result in punishment or loss of visas for executives and, and business leaders. So it's very serious. Very serious. Very interesting. Yeah. Man. Yeah. I mean, when it's the largest auto market, uh, you would think that there might be more I, I questioned, actually, I made calls uh, last week on business training. How are our businesses being trained to know what they can and can't yeah. say? You can't say anything mm-hmm. about the government and you can't say anything about the military. That's, that's not what a lot of companies are used to, or executives. You need a political correction department. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, our work, thanks for sending in your, your question here. Talk about a Katie's engine. So you, you worked on EcoMotors, Eco which was another opposed piston, opposed piston engine, engine, but right? it didn't work, yep, right? right? Or, I mean, the, end of the, day, the we, company uh, didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I was uh, happy to see, actually, Katie's making some progress. It's also an opposed piston configuration. The architecture of the Katie's engine is an old architecture that uh, goes back to the, the uh, Luftwaffe flying uh, the, the Yonkers uh, engine, which was opposed pistons because it got the fuel economy to fly to England from uh, Germany. So, <laughs> so it, uh, it worked, and that's the late 30s, so to speak. So Acades went down that path, and then um, I think they made good progress in terms of emissions and getting good fuel economy and so forth. And uh, now they've tied up with Aramco, I think, for a, a venture. So they'll have you know, a good some flow funding. of money there, some right. funding in there. Uh, I think the architects, the thing that fascinated me at EcoMotors, which is uh, where I was CEO for a number of years, was our architecture was a different architecture. It was opposed pistons, opposed cylinders. It was perfectly balanced, and it had lots of uh, of good uh, characteristics there if we could get it all to work. But I think at the end of the day, the architecture, it had these outer pistons connected with long connecting rods, and uh, we couldn't get those pistons to behave. And uh, so you'd have scuffing issues and, and stuff like that. So uh, that took a lot of effort and time to do that. And I think at the end of the day, never, you know, I left after uh, four or five years there and they continued for a few more years. But um, uh, I was glad to see at least uh, the opposed piston uh, idea has some merit in terms of, and certainly two-cycle engines have some merit. I, that's a confounding one that I've never understood quite why there was not more development in the two-cycle arena. There's lots of advantages to them. Power density is generally higher. Uh, they're way less expensive. They have a hell of a lot less parts, no valve train, no, no camshafts and timing belts and all those sort of things. 
So, um, so it'll be interesting to see how uh, Acades uh, develops there. I was hopeful our architecture at uh, Eco Motors, it was, that was the fundamental patent we had from uh, Professor Hofbauer. Okay. I'm trying to end the show, but I keep getting things here. So, number one, the control room just sent me a message. Uh, Acadie CEO, uh, David Johnson, David Johnson, going to be on this show oh, March great. 8th. Okay. And he's told me he's going to let me drive that F-150 yeah. with the engine. Yeah, it's got a three-cylinder um, uh, posed piston. It's got... Yeah. You know, pretty good horsepower, uh, density When you right go over. and look at the engines, yeah. when you go and look at the... Re I, I hope you have a chance to swing by and look at the work that they're doing at Aramco with this project. Mm, yeah. It's quite phenomenal, actually. All the detailed engine work and the research, and yeah. I've never seen... It's unbelievable. A lot of our engineers from Eco Motors ended up at uh, Katie's oh, at after... Katie's. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay, and we have one more phone call, and then we are going to end the show. So don't anybody else write in or call in. And, Carmen, let's take this last one. I want to thank Mr. Runkle for uh, his perspective on uh, the future of cars. I remember a while back when Mr. Lutz was on, uh, he said everything was going to be electric. I don't believe that. I agree with Mr. Runkle. Thank you. <laughs> hey, thanks for the phone call. Lutz is one of my best friends, and, uh, and uh, uh, we'll be I'll out of you have a bunch of uh, late-night dinner party <laughs> arguments. One coming out next week. <laughs> <laughs> and he's the chairman of, uh, of a, a mostly an electric vehicle company, uh, Via Motors, in, outside of Salt Lake City, and I'm a director at that uh, company. So uh, we just signed a deal with uh, Geely in China Ooh. to bring our technology into that. And they got a lot of wherewithal and a very exciting company, actually, Geely is. Mm. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, China's very committed to electrification. And uh, we have both versions, plug-in hybrid as well as full electric at uh, VIA. So we'll see how that goes. It's a, it's a busy market right now with those sort of things, and we're still also doing fundraising uh, for that company. Yeah, just don't put any Dalai Lamas in your answer. <laughs> well, I'm glad we learned a lot. Yeah. We'll, to, uh, right. no we'll, we'll call you up with any press releases and make sure we get this right. Keep me posted. <laughs> yeah. We just had one go out last week, so I have to go back and reread it now. You have to say, don't commit news. <laughs> Travel safely and don't commit news. Don Runkel, thanks so much for coming okay, on the my show. Pleasure. Great to be able to pick your brain on so many things. Phoebe Howard, fun. great having you. Chris Pocker. We'll have you back again, too. <laughs> Wonderful to be here, as always. Good. And as always, I want to thank all of you for having tuned in. Auto Line After Hours is brought to you by Bridgestone Tires, your journey, our passion. And by Lear, a global leader in automotive seating and electrical systems. Visit our website, Autoline.tv, where you can watch us live Thursday afternoons. Get your daily fix with AutoLine Daily and in-depth analysis and interviews with AutoLine This Week. There's all that and much more at AutoLine.tv. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.